I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. I get nervous sitting up here, which is not surprising in any way. I remember when we implemented this uh, podium that I'm sitting on into speaking protocol in the Zendo. Uh, and I remember having a vote. Um, Brad Cleary had built it, and we were alternating Sundays when it was used and when it was not. It used to be the speaker would always sit on the floor. And I remember, uh, I had only been here two years. I don't know why I was a part of this vote, but I, I voted against it. I felt like public speaking was scary enough. We didn't have to add fear of heights <laughs> to the matter. Um, I want to talk about hello to uh, YouTube and Zoom. I want to talk about faith. And it's a follow-up follow from the conversation that we were having around the breakfast table this morning in which we talked about um, our efforts as spiritual practitioners towards uh, clarity, compassion, towards broadening our identification beyond ourselves to the greater world, looking at the effects that that practice has, and not knowing uh, down the line what the true effect of that might be. We were specifically talking about uh, climate change this morning, talking about uh, individuals becoming greener from the inside out, meaning individuals uh, identifying with the, the beautiful green and blue sphere whose, whose image implanted itself in people around the world in the 1970s when the first photograph of Earth was taken. So the greening of individuals. And uh, as all of us uh, green up some from the inside out, or at least those who, who wish to and care about that, um, we have to do so without the knowledge of what the end effect of that might be. So let's imagine for a moment that uh, the effect of all of the beautiful efforts to um, bring Earth back into balance uh, is the extinction of the human species 50 years from now, just for fun. Let's imagine that that's the result. Um, not like an apocalyptic movie where there's still five people in a radically different society and they've got to rework things, but like, we're all gone. That's it. No one to tell the story. It reminds me of the question um, that I remember Chosen Roshi asking during 
uh, uh, Wednesday night class years ago, if you knew that all of your memory were to be, actually she framed it, if you knew that you were going to go on a vacation and then at the end of the vacation your memory were completely erased, you would have no sense of what it was that you had done, what would you like to do? How would you like to spend your time? So it's a similar question in that now we imagine all of our evolution as a species and our iPads and our medical technology. And then in an instant, that was it. That was it. There wasn't anything after that. It wasn't leading to anything. It just stops. And of course, at some point in the future, this obviously will be the case. We don't basically assume that it's going to happen uh, in the year 2071 because it would feel arbitrary. But inevitably, we, we know that, that our extinction, like the extinction of everything else, um, is, is written, so to speak. But if we push it up and we say, okay, it's going to happen in, in 2071, and it's just going to happen like that, then, then how do you want to live as an individual, as a culture, knowing that it won't matter beyond that point? Yeah. Of course, there are individuals who live with this kind of question, who... who have terminal diagnoses. The question, of course, integrates itself deeper into the individual as we all age. But it's harder to really address thinking globally, thinking sociologically. But if you really imagine that, then what, what is it that becomes important to you? What is it that you want your country to work towards, that you want yourself to work towards? All of a sudden, things become unachievable. Space technology is only going to go so far in the next 50 years. Medical technology is only going to go so far in the next 50 years. And if all of that effort stops then, then what, what is it that really matters? During this practice period, which will be two or three months, we have decided to make Zen the theme, which is a little bit amusing, but... But we are um, interconnected with all things, so our studies as beings are wide and vast, and um, we're going to focus on Zen. Shanae led a class on Friday night uh, about Bodhidharma, the ancestor who is attributed with bringing Buddhism from India to China, approximately 500 common era. 
uh, Zen Buddhism specifically, uh, a figure that has a lot, of, a lot of folklore around him. And she shared several Bodhidharma quotes, and the one that I'm going to share with us today and talk about are, is, uh, the truth is there's nothing to find. The truth is that there is nothing to find. But you need to struggle to make yourself understand this. So these, these are seemingly two of the most common sentences in Zen literature, phrased the way they are there. Um, a sentence about um, non-striving and then a sentence about striving, one put right, one right after the other. That's how they commonly appear. Life and death are important. Do not suffer them in vain. There's no advantage in deceiving yourself. And it's the last sentence that I want to talk about. There's no advantage in deceiving yourself. Because um, that's the one that really has um, personal weight, at least to my heart. Change this here. didn't really like the podium in between us. <laughs> During Shanae's class, she showed us a video of Byron Katie, a spiritual teacher whose um, appearance is... is kind of like a cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, and she talked about the way that we put post-its on everything that we experience was the metaphor that she used. And that we need to discern what the post-its are and what the actual person is. And that that's really in a nutshell what our practice is as human beings, as spiritual beings, to really learn what we wrote on the post-its that we put on people and things, and then to recognize them as post-its, which are therefore removable, and we can actually interact freshly with the thing itself uh, uncovered by post-its. And this line that I just finished reading, there is no advantage in deceiving yourself, Bodhidharma's line, points at 
how easily, how easily we can become falsely satisfied in not really taking the last post-its off, in, in being satisfied with what we believe something to be. But ultimately, there's no advantage in, um, in deceiving ourselves because we are the ones who suffer that. So how do we make that, how do we make that real? Um, fear and pain are like the two obvious obstacles for a human being, right? Physical pain, it just hurts, end of story, it's no fun. And then fear creates an endless list of psychological obstacles which take an entire lifetime to, to work through. If I, if I start and look at my own fear, as you all might well know, fear as we experience it in the present moment is, is a very liberating experience in, in many different ways. There's the fear, there's a fear of adrenaline, which is very satisfying. There's the fear that is the fear, there's the fear of, of human intimacy as we become closer with another person and it's very connective and sensitive and, and frightening at the same time. There's the fear of um, letting go of ideas about ourself and realizing or, or maybe allowing the, lim- the self-imposed limitations to not be true. to give ourselves the courage um, to become who we told ourselves we couldn't be, to give, our, to give ourselves the courage to do what we told ourselves that we couldn't do because we were afraid to. And in what I'm describing, it's like we have our fear which might basically be the fear of the unknown. And upon that fear itself, we, we put all sorts of post-its. And on the post-its, it's very clearly written um, what we will or will not do, who we will or will not be. And those post-its are all removable because we're not in control. And it's not up to us 
what we can and cannot do and who we will and will not be. That's not our fate. That's not our, that's not our decision. We're not that empowered in that way. But we can, we can remove the post-its in the present, and, and that's what you know, Byron Katie's inquiry work is. Removing the self-imposed limitations, and and that reveals the raw fear in the present, uncontrived, unadorned, and it's frightening. But it's also very satisfying, because coming in contact with that brings us in touch with our true, uh, lived, real life, which is ultimately what we want. It's much more satisfying to be in touch with that raw, present fear than to be in touch with the plan that we've created to avoid that fear. that the force of fear made us create because we weren't able to be stable with it. And if we look at, if we look at uh, physical pain, just, just a, a raw, obvious example of something that we don't want, In liberation from all obstructions, the chant that we've done at lunch here most most days since I've been here, um, there's, there's a, a series of lines very simply saying, I, I vow to choose my life. I vow to choose the experience that comes. And it's not like, masochism, you know, it's not like rah, 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 I absolutely love pain and I'm so happy that I broke my arm and I'm going to break my other one because I just love this. Um, but rather, having faith in what, in what life is and humility that I don't need to be the boss and that a broken bone isn't wrong, that a broken heart isn't wrong, and that I'm so glad that my bones are breakable because anything that can grow can break. It's basic physics, and, and I, wouldn't want, I wouldn't want bones that couldn't grow, and I wouldn't want bones that couldn't heal. I wouldn't want a heart that couldn't heal. So I want a heart that can break. That's what I want, and that's honesty. And preventing that from happening and, and, and resisting the breaking of the heart, that's, that is dishonesty. Because we don't, we don't want to live scarred over. We want to be um, penetrable. That's intimacy. 
Um, the quote that I read from Bodhidharma starts with um, so his version of there's nothing to achieve. Uh, yeah, the truth is there's nothing to find, but we have to work really hard in order to verify this. Um, because the other truth is we constantly are in a state of believing that there's something to find. And that, that simply means wanting something. Wanting something. And we can't put another post-it on top of that wanting something that, that says, actually, I don't want anything. I mean, we, we, we can. That's, that's what depression is. And, and that's what we absolutely can. But it's another post-it. That's what it is. It's not wisdom. And when he says we have to look really hard and work really hard to see that there's nothing to find, he's, at least an aspect of what he's saying is we have to really look at all of the post-its that we put on ourselves, the, the green ones and the yellow ones and the orange ones and those ones that are kind of pink, all the different things that we said that we want, that we want out of life, that we want to be, that we want for ourselves, that we want other people to give us, that we hope for the world, the future that really would be nice later, that thing that I really hope doesn't happen. Every single one of those has to be seen for what it is. It has to be seen as a story. It has to be seen as a belief. It has to be acknowledged that it's something we created. That it's a post-it that we put there. And we can't actually take it off until we really see it all the way down to its bottom until we see the absolute emptiness of it, to use our, our language. For all of them, for all of them. And that's why it's a continual process. Uh, I'm going to share a beautiful image that I had the other morning, which is actually what I wrote. Um, Shanae and I just, just got back to the monastery after being away for um, since September or October, since we got married, I guess, um, and had been here the, the 10 years prior while we were here in quarantine, we would sit outside the zendo during the morning and evening meditation periods. And I'm very happy to be back in the zendo. It's lovely, but I got to say, y'all are missing out on the sky because it's been exquisite. And I was looking at the fields, the field out here, and in a way, um, contemplating interdependence, I guess. And the field is one being, right? We can grasp that. It's not too 
doesn't feel like a stretch. Maybe it feels a little bit creative to see the, the world as one being, but this field of grass, it's simple to acknowledge. But it still felt like a stretch to say, you know, this piece of grass over here and this piece of grass are, are interconnected because they're so far apart. They're doing different things and they've never met. But if we look at just this little tiny patch here of, of 20 blades of grass growing in this patch of moss, it's like this little family unit and they all probably grew up together and their roots are mingled and they were baby grass blades together. And because this one grew up in this direction, this one had to go this way a little bit, which pushed down the moss some, which prevented this one from really growing, which made this one really big and strong. They all grew up in relationship with each other and never exited that relationship because it's, it's the source that they were born from, that they grew from. And of course, this is true with the whole field. It just becomes more difficult to conceptualize. And it still sounds a little crazy to say, like, this one's here because this one's here. But it is easy to acknowledge, oh, they grew up in relationship with each other. And we can say that, of course, with respect to the field and the forest as well. They grew up out of relation, in relationship with each other. And because the forest is in a certain place, the water goes in a certain direction and has a relationship with the streams, and the streams have a relationship with the mountains and the ocean. So as we, we go bigger and bigger, again, it seems weird to say this tree is here because that rock is there, but we can see that, that these things grow up in relationship from, from a certain source. If we're just looking at a field, we can imagine that source as being the dirt and the bigger a system we're considering, um, the image of it all arising from this source perhaps is a bit more mysterious, but, but we can feel this relationship, I think. And it's true with us as human beings as well. I was home with my family over the last several months, and it's kind of fun to watch now having grown up in the home with my younger brother, how when we were little, I was this way, and because I was this way, he was that way, and these modes of being created specific relationships with our parents that still affect the way we relate to each other and the way we relate to them now and, and affect the things that we do now. So it doesn't make any sense to say my brother designs surfboards because I'm a Zen priest, but those two paths have always were born in relationship and, and always are. 
And the more we can broaden this, the more we can see all things as part of our family. And the more things that we can see as part of our family, then the less, the less alone we feel. All of this is, is about liberation. All of this is about liberation. It's very beautiful that entire traditions have persevered for as long as they have, motivated by that thread the desire for the liberation of so-called individuals. And it's very beautiful to um, believe that these religious traditions uh, are just representatives for the basic vow of, of life and that the basic vow of life also is, is liberation. Whether or not that really is true, um, I can't speak to, but I'm very grateful to be uh, a human being who has the capacity to orient my heart in that direction and uh, align my life's work in that direction. And I really resonate with everyone here in that respect. And I'm very grateful to be around people who, who share that aspiration and wish for others. I don't know if there's anything left for me to say. I'll share one more bit on, on gratitude that I also prepared. Uh, Shanae and I were watching a Q&A with Rupert Spira, and someone asked him, uh, he referenced um, a quote from, from the Christian mystic and scholar, Meister Eckhart. If, if, if one's only prayer, I wrote it down. If the only prayer you ever say in your entire life is thank you, it will be enough. And the question was to Rupert Spira, do you agree? If the only prayer you say in your entire life is thank you, is that enough? And his answer was yes, with a pretty big asterisk 
after it. He said it is definitely not enough to go to bed at night and say, thanks. It is not enough to express, it is not enough to express gratitude for the things that we're basically grateful for. That alone is insufficient. What is enough is to extend our gratitude continually. And, that, and that's a life's work. That's really, really a practice. If we use the example of the broken arm, you know, what, what do we have here to be grateful for? I mean, it hurts. I can't wash the dishes. If we're a 21-year-old AAA baseball player, we might have just lost our career. What do we have to be grateful for? When I was asking this question in um, um, preparation for this talk, the first thought that I had um, was, well, if it weren't for bones being able to break, someone in this room is going to remember the name of the climber who would still be stuck under that boulder. Aaron Ralston? Aaron Ralston. Ralston. Say again? Ralston. Ralston, thank you. (laughs) If it weren't for bones' ability to break, he'd still be pinned under that boulder. But how wonderful that the body has the ability to tell us when something's wrong in such a clear and direct way. And there are cases of people whose bodies don't do that, and the result is severe injury and and premature death in, in cases. How wonderful to have the clarity about what this body can and can't do. To to really know, I cannot put weight on my leg, and to really know it's healed. And to have the opportunity to see raw, vivid pain and then all of the post-its that we put upon that pain, what will or won't happen as a result, what this means, what I believe I can't or can experience or endure, all the made-up implications, to really see ourselves, ourselves, our created selves, our creative selves that arise in response to pain and fear is an opportunity of a lifetime. It's literally an opportunity of a lifetime because it can give us the opportunity to have our lives back that we rob ourselves from. Um, And if we have that perspective, if, if we have the interest in cultivating that perspective, 
then the road towards cultivating gratitude for all things is open. Um, thank you, thank you for the opportunity to uh, let me sit up here and share myself with you some. Thank <laughs> you.